This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast. Critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer. Hey everybody, Eric with you. Today we're going to jump into a new podcast and uh, we're going to focus on new concepts in critical care and emergency medicine. So this podcast should be about 10 minutes. I always say that and I tend to run my mouth a little longer than I should. So hopefully I will keep it under 10 minutes and we're just going to look at three new concepts in critical care medicine. We're going to try to do this every month and then we'll take those new concepts and we'll actually form um, a good educational podcast based on that stuff. So this is stuff that I've just come across in the last, I'd say, month that I want to bring up. And, you know, the big focus on why I started Flatbridge Ed was to get critical care concepts, new research, new theories down to the rural areas, these small hospitals, these uh, EMS agencies that have a hard time uh, finding this information. So that was the whole point of me initially starting Flatbridge Ed. So I think it's important that we continue with that mission, that we uh, look at these concepts, we try to disseminate it and uh, you know dissect these things and get them out. So the first thing I wanna bring up, if, you, if you've ever heard of a new concept, it's called Rebola. Rebola is called resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. So that was a big, a big word. So resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Well, what is that? Well, this is a concept that has been in vascular surgery for quite a while, uh, years, and they use this technique to basically occlude off a major artery during surgery so they can fix that artery. And then it dawned on somebody to maybe apply this to a traumatic injury with massive hemorrhage, uh, whether it's blunt or penetrating trauma, um, specifically pelvic fractures, um, things that we see our patients absolutely um, exsanguinating from. So this concept, this uh, procedure is something that uh, in the United States, University of Baltimore, Maryland, shock trauma, Dr. Brenner, uh, she's leading the way in the United States and applying this to trauma. Um, And so essentially, really quickly what they do is they divide the torso up into three zones. Zone one is basically at the level of the heart. Uh, Zone two is gonna be from the diaphragm down to right above the renal arteries and zone three is approximately at those renal arteries down into the pelvis area. So what they do is they place a sheath, um, a cortis and this balloon through the femoral artery, just like we would see um, during a cath. They're going to place this, they're going to slide it up into place, and they're going to inflate that balloon. Um, based on what zone it is, it can stay inflated for, you know, if it's zone one up near the heart, I, I think approximately an hour, hour and a half. If it's zone uh, two or three, you know, they've been um, doing four to five hours that these patients will have this occluded off artery. And essentially what we're, what they're doing is they're attempting to Uh, stop the bleeding from the point of where the injury is and uh, down distally. And so this is a pretty cool thing if you think about it. This is a a big deal as far as I'm concerned. I mean, this is going to change the way we see pre-hospital medicine. And why do I say pre-hospital medicine? Well, there's an actual HEMS program in the United Kingdom, 
that staff physicians, and they actually just performed a few months back the first rebola in the field in a in a, a traumatic injury MBC. Um, I think it was an open book pelvic fracture, and they performed a rebola in the field. So that's pretty amazing. Um, so. Just be looking for a podcast on that. I believe MCRIT, Dr. Weingart, he did a podcast on that and, and looked at that. And there's other critical care MD level podcasts that have touched on this. I just wanted to bring this to you guys in the HEMS pre-hospital industry, let you know about this. And we will do a podcast and focus more on the educational aspects of that. The second thing I want to talk about is no more cervical collars. What does that mean? Holy cow. There's a website out of um, uh, Scandinavian area, uh, it's called ScanCrit, and ScanCrit is a, an emergency medical critical care um, anesthesia blog uh, made up of a few different MDs over in Europe. And they looked at this literature um, and they basically made a recommendation that they we don't play cervical collars on every single patient. Now you can imagine the backlash, you can imagine how people um, are going to take this. I'm sure you sitting there right now, if you haven't heard of this, you're probably dropping your jaw as I did. And this is their quote, um, and I will put this um, link in the show notes. We suggest against spinal motion restriction, defined as the reduction of or limitation of cervical spine movement by routine application of a cervical collar or bilateral sandbags in comparison to no cervical spine restriction in adults and children with blunt suspected traumatic cervical spine injury. There's a weak recommendation, very low quality of evidence. Values and preference statement. Because of the proven adverse effects in studies with injured patients and evidence concerning a decrease in head movement only comes from studies with cadavers or healthy volunteers benefits do not outweigh harm and routine application of cervical collars is not recommended. So when I heard about this, I actually uh, came across this on Twitter. I was discussing a few concepts with a doctor out of Australia that does the farm podcast and we were all having a debate and this, this popped up and came up. And so we started discussing this. Now, obviously in the industry, we've seen a paradigm change where there are EMS agencies, EMS systems that are actually clearing uh, C-spine in the field. Um, I've used that term and I had an anesthesiologist on Twitter actually correct me and, and say he'd rather not use the word, word clearing, which I guess I can understand. It's all in how you say things because there's really no way we can clear without a, an x-ray. But there are EMS systems that have a protocol for looking at patients uh, from an objective standpoint, doing a good assessment, critically thinking, and making a determination if they need to be C-spine or not, which I, I completely agree with. I don't think we should just arbitrarily C-spine every single person that we, we come across. Obviously, this is a big thing when you look at medical direction and the liability that falls on them, and I'm sure this is going to be looked at a thousand different ways. Um, and we will discuss this further in, again, another podcast, and I'll keep you posted. Again, I will put a link to the PDF to the uh, article in the show notes uh, on the website, on the blog, and so you can look at that. And then the last thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to do a focused, uh, probably three-part series on this topic, but get rid of dopamine in the pre-hospital environment. Uh, Levofit is a primary presser, and it should be the primary presser. Why do we have all these EMS agencies that are still thinking 20 years ago? 
We need to have progressive uh, minded people that are open to new concepts, new research, new trials. And there are an abundance of trials and research that have shown that dopamine is a bad medication. Now, it's not bad in every single circumstance, but for the purpose of a first line presser in uh, on an ambulance for basically any patient, I think it's absolutely horrible. Uh, here's why, here's, here's my thing. Um, the first thing, and it's been proven, and I will again put these links in the show notes, and we will start next week um, on a uh, first part series on looking at dopamine, looking at levofed, and then we're going to continue through. We'll look at neosinephrine, we'll look at vasopressin, um, we'll look at milurone and things like that. So the first thing, we in critical care in medicine, we've been taught to look at perfusion from the standpoint of urine output. And we're, we're taught that we want 30 to 50 cc's per hour, that that's optimal. If you have burn patients, obviously you want at least 100 mils per hour, but the urine output is our gauge for perfusion. Well, dopamine, even at five mics per kilo, um, improves, increases significantly the urine output of our patients. We have to remember that our kidneys receive 20% of our cardiac output, and that once our MAP pressure drops below 65, maybe even 60, our, our kidneys recognize that and it shunts off and it stops allowing perfusion to those kidneys because it knows that the rest of our body needs that cardiac output. So it says, all right, I'm gonna shut off. I don't need to produce urine at this point. Um, and and that's, that's what our kidneys do. So if you have a patient that is hypotensive, if their MAP is below 65, and then we start giving dopamine like that, and we're trying to gauge their urine output to see how well they're actually perfusing, and now we give a medication that is gonna optimize urine output, you can see how that's going to give you a very false sense of how perfused your patient really is, how sick your patient really is. Studies have shown that the, the low dose, two mics per kilo uh, per minute, is uh, not something that we want to do to increase um, the perfusion to the kidneys. And that we also have learned that once you exceed 10 mics per kilo, you start having very detrimental effects. You have decreased cardiac output, you have decreased diastolic clearing and filling because that heart rate, because there's so much inotropic effect of dopamine that you start increasing um, myocardial O2 demand and you know that's going against everything we're trying to do. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a patient where I've arrived at an ICU, small ICU, and these patients have been absolutely hemodynamically unstable. They're on dopamine at 20 mics per minute and they're hypotensive and they're tachycardic at 150. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you that it's been countless times. Um, and all every single time, all you do is you, you titrate that dopamine off, add a little levofed, and you know, nine times out of 10, the patient completely turns around. Once you start lowering that heart rate and you allow for diastolic clearing and filling, then you have a optimal heart. You, your heart is working better. So we're gonna look at this concept. We're gonna look at dopamine in more depth. We're gonna look at levofed in more depth. The few things that dopamine is good for, pediatric patients, where they, remember, they need heart rate. They need heart rate because that's what gives them that stroke volume and that cardiac output. So that's a good medication to start with in the pediatric population, maybe in sepsis. Um, obviously you can use epi and, and other pressors. Um, and then a bradycardic 
situation in an adult associated with hypotension. If somebody needs rate control, they need some rate help, then we can add dopamine and I think it's a great medication in that context. But just to arbitrarily throw dopamine on an ambulance and say that's your primary presser and not look at the whole big picture, I think is reckless. And we need to be looking now at the current science and Levofid is the medication. The whole old sayings of Levofid, leave them dead is absolutely false. Um, that's a misguided mis uh, misconception and Levofid is here to stay and most intensivist in the world, that's their primary presser in all situations is Levofid. Remember Levofid in low dose um, has great preload effects. Uh, it also has afterload effects. So you can give a very low dose of, of Levofid, you're gonna get great preload optimization. You don't have to give as much fluid because we know fluid can be a bad thing. Um, you know, instead of giving uh, 10 liters of fluid in 24 hours, you know, start giving two liters of fluid starting out. Um, give low dose Levofid. It has very, very low cardiac effects. So you're not gonna have that huge increase in, in uh, heart rate. And then uh, the aspects of that heart rate being low, you're gonna have better diastolic filling and clearing, and that's gonna lead to better cardiac output. So we're gonna look at all these things. We're looking at, at pressors in a way that is easy to understand. And this is a concept, again, that Scott Weingart had come up with. I thought it was excellent. Uh, all credit goes to him, but he classifies pressors in three different ways. A pure presser, so that's neosinephrine, um, that's levofed, an inopressor, right, an inotropic presser, that's going to be dopamine, and then an inodilator. Inodilator is going to be like dobutamine and milurone. So we're going to look at all those, we're going to classify all those in those categories and dive into uh, this topic and other pressors um, here shortly. That's all I have for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, leave your comments. Uh, come on here and, and you know uh, leave your comments on the blog. I'll write a little blog on this. Um, look for the different links in the show notes and share this with a friend and we will talk to you soon. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.